and I had to drop her off between 1.20 and 1.30. No, no, no! Oh, God, no! What, what was she wearing? I'm innocent. I'm Randy Page. Welcome to Flawed Justice, the Kimberly Long story. Coming up in Episode 5, a startling ruling from a Superior Court judge. It's just another indication. We got an innocent person here, and it meant so much to her. A former juror examines the inmate's description of Ozzy's murder in light of what neighbors had to say at the trial. It more plausibly fits the neighbor's accounts of the noise and the commotion and the motorcycles and the car alarms and all those things. Kimberly Long has an emotional message for Ozzy's family. I'm sorry. A mother's dream comes true. It was the best 12 days of my life. And nightmares return. I'm tired of waking up and remembering it's not over yet. Four and a half months have now passed since our last episode, and Kimberly Long continues to live in legal limbo. Each passing day brings her closer to a life-changing crossroad, offering only two directions, freedom or prison. And she says, the closer she gets to the end of that road, the more terrifying her journey becomes. It's a cold, clear February morning on a winding country road about 20 miles outside of Corona. Lake Matthews is on your left, reflecting a deep blue surrounded by green rolling hills as far as the eye can see. Behind the lake, Mount Baldy is covered with snow, perfectly framed on the northern horizon. It's unusually beautiful this time of year, thanks to a week's worth of rain down here and snow up there. It's just limitless, the freedom that you feel when you're out there. Kimberly Long is standing next to her dark blue Suzuki motorcycle, zipping up her jacket, and starts the 600cc engine. She's prying open her full-face helmet, and it's kind of unusual. It has a mosaic of Star Wars figures on it and bright images of asteroids and land speeders. It was a gift from her son, Seth. She cinches up the neck strap, slides on her gloves, clicks the bike into gear, and launches onto the winding two-lane road. There's just freedom behind it. There's freedom. Is that the opposite of being in prison? Standing count! Stand by your boats! confined, completely confined inside of a tiny little cell. Yeah, with a crank out window that you wouldn't get a breeze through. And you just stare out the window, you know, and just wait for the day. And now I can just get out there and I can feel that breeze. And I can do it whenever I want, 
You know, nobody gets to tell me when I could get on my bike or when I can't get on my bike or where I'm going, you know, I just, there's a freedom to just get on the bike and leave. Nobody gets to tell me anything in those moments. It's just me, you know? And uh, I, I like the freedom. Freedom that went to a whole new level a few months ago. That's when a Superior Court judge in Riverside made a startling ruling. He lifted travel restrictions that have been in place ever since Kimberly was released from prison in 2016. Those restrictions prevented her from leaving Southern California, but now she can travel wherever she wants in all 50 states. Here's California Innocence Project director Justin Brooks. The travel restrictions getting lifted was just another indication that Kimberly is innocent. The judge isn't concerned about her going anywhere because there's no reason to be concerned about Kimberly. Kimberly is not a danger to anybody. Uh, so, you know, it's, this is just another indication. We got an innocent person here and it meant so much to her. I hugged my attorney and I told strangers all around me that I was able to go to 50 different states. So people thought I was probably crazy. Crazy enough to make her wish come true. Oh my God, my road trip was awesome. In December, Kimberly and her son Seth climbed into a rented four-wheel drive Jeep Grand Cherokee and headed north. I have not been out of Riverside County for over 15 years, and my mind was just overwhelmed with everything that I had seen. Oh my gosh. Cell phone video captured the moment they crossed over the Golden Gate Bridge. I think I need to run across it. hiking through Golden Gate Park, driving through a canopy of giant redwoods in Humboldt County. I've never seen redwoods like that. I've never seen trees that high. The color green, as green as it was, uh, it was beautiful. Kimberly and Seth drove for six days through California, Oregon, and into Washington. You think my Jeep would fit through here? No. We got to bond. Uh, on this trip, you know, we we really got to know each other. <laughs> we were stuck in a car together um, all day long and in hotel rooms and in people's homes and on couches. And we were like just a couple of hippies, like being nomads, you know, throughout these states. And we had a blast. We had a blast. Uh, we got to see cool things together and we liked to light incense. That car was very foggy for most of the trip with our incense going on, but uh, I think he enjoyed it just as much as I did. Did you feel like you really got to know him on that trip? Yeah, for sure. And what did you learn about him? What did I learn about him? That he's, that he's really sensitive. My son is, is a very sensitive, uh, I can't say child, I keep thinking he's a kid. He's very sensitive, but he's very, um, he's very brave. And he's just trying to like learn about himself at 21 years of age. Their destination, her daughter's home in Washington. It was the best 12 days of my life. Really? Honestly, that was like the best 12 days of my life. It really was. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> I was with both of my kids 
at the same time under one roof and we all fell asleep. And that had been the first time in over 15 years, since 2003. Oh my goodness, they're so cute! 2003. So the trip was absolutely amazing. I remember I was sitting on the couch. I would sit on a certain side of the couch every morning and their house is on a hill so I get to look out on everything. And when she took her dog out that morning, I remember looking down at her and thinking, I can't believe she's 26 years old with a career, a husband, and a home. Where did the time go? Where did it all go? And, um, I, you know, I really self-reflected uh, that time uh, for those 12 days on everything, maybe about everything that I missed, but, you know, she's grown into herself. She's a strong, strong woman. Um, she's doing fine. She's doing just fine. But I'd realized really how strong she is as a person, as an individual. Is it difficult to see how your case has impacted them in their lives? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's the absence, um, the absence of their mother. Um, I know, I know I've missed out on a lot. They missed out on having their mother there through very uh, important times of their life. But they've, uh, they've had to do it by themselves. They had their dads, but they had to do it without really that strong uh, mother figure uh, in their lives. But thank goodness for their dads because they really came out, uh, they did just fine. They had really strong fathers and loving and kind fathers. And, uh, you know, they made it through just fine. But I know there's, there's that small little emptiness in them, you know, and to know that it's not over, I know still impacts them, but they put on a very brave face they put on a very brave face that uh, you get to, sometimes it's hard to see through, but I'm their mom and I know, I know their struggle. I do certify and declare as follows. Remember the prison inmate who claimed to know what really happened on the night of the murder? According to the inmate's declaration, Jeff Dills called a couple of biker friends while Kimberly was using his bathroom and asked them to go to Kimberly's and make sure Ozzy was out of her house by the time he drove her home. And he needed Pete to kick his ass and run him off Kim's property. The prison snitch says when Ozzy opened the door, he threatened to call the police and said he had a gun. The two bikers pushed through the front door, one hit Ozzy in the head with an ax handle, and Ozzy fell on the couch and died. According to the inmate, the bikers rode off on a motorcycle, then burned their bloody clothes and got rid of the murder weapon. So how does the inmate's story fit in with testimony from neighbors at the trial? Arnie. Hi. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me again. Okay, I appreciate yeah. it. Come on in. I went back to Arnie White's house to try and find out. Remember, Arnie was one of the 12 jurors who convicted Kimberly Long. So he watched and listened to the testimony of the neighbors who were called in to testify at the trial. Arnie said a neighbor named Philip Verga, who lived directly across the street from Kimberly's house, seemed to be the most credible, because when he heard noises coming from across the street that night, 
he remembered to check the time. Put his glasses on, he looked at the, looked at the clock, uh, he saw the time, and then he walked to the window, which is above his garage, and described the view, again with the time reference. Philip Verga testified he heard a loud motorcycle and voices across the street just before midnight on the night of the murder. About a half an hour later, he yelled, it's after midnight, give us a break and let us get some sleep. Verga said things quieted down until around 1.20 when he heard the roar of a motorcycle going down the street. Prosecutors said that was probably Jeff Dills leaving after he dropped Kimberly off just like he told police days after the murder. I had to drop her off between 1.20 and 1.30. Remember, this timeline that Dills dropped Kimberly off at around 1.20 formed the foundation of the prosecution's case because, prosecutors said, it gave Kimberly enough time to kill Ozzy, clean up, get rid of the murder weapon, and call 911. But what if the motorcycle Philip Verga heard was actually the bikers identified by the inmate as possibly the real killers riding away after they killed Ozzy. Then there's the issue of the car alarm. Verga and a few other neighbors said they heard a car alarm go off about two in the morning. The neighbor who lived next door to Kimberly said she heard a motorcycle driving away right after the car alarm went off. Could that have been Jeff Dills leaving Kimberly's house after he dropped her off about 2 a.m., like Kimberly claims? Former juror Arnie White. It more plausibly fits the neighbor's accounts of the noise and the commotion and the motorcycles and the car alarms and all those things. I believe they heard what they heard. They were, there were too many people disconnected that weren't trying to connect their stories. They heard something at those times, and all of them did. And now we have a much more plausible theory that there had been earlier bar hopping. Uh, there was a fight. There was, I want him out of the house kind of thing. And two guys are, are dispatched over there to uh, scare him and convince him to leave. And it got out of hand. I, I, possibly that, that's, that's a new theory that makes more sense. You may remember I shared a copy of the inmate's declaration with the Corona Police Department. I'll pass it on to our detectives. And a senior investigator at the district attorney's office. We'll definitely look into it. Police and prosecutors are not saying if they've done any investigation into the inmate's claims. In fact, the Riverside County District Attorney's Office isn't saying anything at all about the case. But that doesn't mean they're trying to dodge me. It's simply the DA's policy not to comment on cases that are still under appeal. And it's clear police and prosecutors believe Kimberly is guilty. They just don't think this is the appropriate time to address the questions I've raised in this podcast. And I want to be clear. The point of this podcast is not to prove Kimberly Long's innocence. I'm simply trying to examine the evidence. And I'm eager to ask the DA the same question I've put to everyone else I've spoken to about this case. If Kimberly Long is guilty, how did she kill Ozzy without getting any blood on her? How do members of Ozzy's family feel about all of this? I honestly thought I would be able to give you an answer a few weeks ago 
Ozzy's brother John picked up the phone when I called, and he said he and his mother would be willing to talk to me. But then I tried to set the time and place. He said he would call right back, but never did. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Hey, John, Randy Page calling from CBS. Uh, we spoke on Friday. You'd mentioned that you and your mom would be able to talk to me. I was really looking forward to that. You said you'd give me a call right back, and I haven't heard back. Since then, I've called him many times, and he doesn't pick up the phone, and he doesn't return my voicemails. Please give me a call uh, when you get the message, um, or please pick up when I call. Um, if I don't hear from you today, I'll give you a call tomorrow. Thanks, man. Bye. When I spoke to John briefly last summer, he said the DA instructed Ozzy's family not to talk to reporters, and the family was honoring that request. He also said, as you can well imagine, Ozzy's murder has been devastating for his mother, as well as the rest of the family, and after 15 years, it's hard for the family to revisit the details of what happened. My hope is, at some point, they will add their voices to this story, so I can share with you who Ozzy was and what he meant to those who've been left behind. In that first phone call last summer, Ozzy's brother John told me he believes Kimberly is guilty. And he came to that conclusion because of the way she acted on the night of the murder. She was, after all, an emergency room nurse. So John asks, why didn't she jump in and try to save Ozzy's life? Instead, she picked up the phone and called for somebody else to come and help him. So John asks, is that how an innocent person would act? I wanted to get John an answer. So I asked Kimberly. What would you tell him? You know what sucks is I, I, I've known John since I was a kid. You know, I've known John forever. So f when I had realized that he didn't believe me, um, it was a crushing moment in my life. You know, not being believed, not only by the cops, but then John. You know, that was like devastating to me. Um, I don't know what anybody wanted me to do. What I, and I keep saying the same thing, what I saw, I couldn't do anything about. What I saw on Ozzy, I knew there was nothing that I could do to fix whatever was happening. So the only thing I could do was call my friends, the paramedics, to come and figure out what had happened in my home. So he, he wasn't awake. There was no active bleeding he should be breathing, so I believed he was breathing. There's no reason why he shouldn't be breathing. So I don't know what anybody wanted me to do, and to be faulted for it kills me. I don't know how to make John or his mom feel any better about that. What would you tell them today? I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I couldn't do anything that would have made a difference. I'm sorry I froze. I'm sorry I freaked out. I didn't know what to do. I just didn't know. I don't know what you want me to do. It just hurts so bad to be blamed for something you didn't do. And then to be a nurse on top of it and they people fault you. They fault you for your non-reaction. I don't know. You know, I've struggled with that for a long time. I had to apologize 
to Ozzy who's dead for not helping. I remember the DA said she didn't even put a blanket on him. And it just hurt me so bad that he said that, that I didn't comfort him or whatever. I don't know what you want me to do. And so it just hurts that somebody says something as cruel as that. Ugh. So that, it, it hurts. <laughs> No, other pop. Other pop. Kimberly Long's murder conviction prevents her from practicing as a nurse. So now she spends her time with other clients with four legs rather than two. Hi, welcome to Kimberly's Paws and Claws. I pick up and deliver if needed, and I also do nails only. I come to you. I had to reinvent myself. I couldn't be a nurse anymore, and I didn't want to work with people anymore, honestly, so animals were the next best thing, and I love every second of it. I get to hang out with animals all day and really good people. <laughs> That's Kimberly grooming a gray and white pit bull inside a trailer owned by a friend who has a mobile pet grooming business. I get to see the sunrise come up, and I get to drive around all day. I get to see the sunset. I get to pet cats and wrestle with dogs. What is it about animals that you're drawn to? They're very trusting. They're very trusting, they're very um, vulnerable, and they're trusting that you're not gonna hurt them. It sounds almost like you're describing the people who would be coming into the emergency room. Yes. Vulnerable, you have to make them feel like. Everything's gonna be okay, they're frightened, they're unsure. Yeah, yeah, so I, you know, I miss nursing every day. I miss it, I miss the people. So just being with animals is, you get to nurture them and take care of them and I kind of feel like I'm in that mode still of, you know, helping, because I want to help. So where does Kimberly Long's case stand right now? Here's Innocence Project director, Justin Brooks. You know, <laughs> it's late at night and she's in the criminal justice casino trying to figure out what she can do to save her life. Uh, you know, we were let down by Jerry Brown. She didn't get clemency. Now her option is left with the California Supreme Court. We don't know what they're going to do. We don't know what's going to happen with the Riverside District Attorney's Office. Um, we've been trying to get them to look at all the stuff you've looked into to really research this case from the ground up, take a second look at it. I, just, I, don't, I don't know, you know, where it stands is in limbo and her life is in limbo. She could go back to prison. She could be back in prison for many years. Justin says Kimberly Long has one last option, an appeal to California's new governor, Gavin Newsom. What would you want to tell Gavin Newsom about the Kimberly Long case? You know, when, when you interviewed me about this years ago, I said, Governor, you don't even have to declare her innocent. You just look at this case, say, there's some serious problems here, there's some serious questions here, and she spent years in prison, and she spent many more years with it hanging over her head, and it's time to end this. Um, so I think if he takes a close look at it, he'll see she's innocent. 
But I don't think you have to take a very close look to see all the problems with this case, to see that there's doubt everywhere you look in this case. And if we believe in our system and we believe that people shouldn't be in prison, if there's doubt about their guilt, then this is exactly the kind of case that the governor should use his clemency power on. That's the whole idea of clemency. Clemency is supposed to be a safety valve where the system has failed. And here, I don't see anyone who could argue that the system hasn't failed Kimberly in every single way. And it's worth noting that clemency doesn't mean the governor is saying she's innocent. Exactly. It simply says that she spent enough time in prison in the interest of justice, she should be allowed to live a normal life. I believe that Kimberly deserves a pardon. I believe that there should be a declaration that she's innocent and we, that's what should happen. But if the governor gave her clemency, just ending the sentence, I'd be very happy. What would Arnie White, one of the 12 jurors who convicted Kimberly, tell Governor Newsom? She has been wrongly convicted. And the only thing the governor should do is either commute or pardon. I, I would ask, if, if he asked my opinion, I would say a pardon is the only fair thing to do. Again, here's Justin Brooks. What do you hope will happen in this case? I mean, <laughs> it, it would be great if Kimberly was vindicated through the courts. It'd be great, but it's a huge risk, you know? And she's, she's out there right now, every day, risking that she goes back into custody. So, you know, I, I want this to be over for her. I want her to have peace of mind. I want her not to have to live every day like it's her last. There's certainly some joy in that when you're gonna cherish every minute, but there's also terror right at the edge of it at all times. Kimberly Long told me her nightmares have returned. Just last week, she woke up in a cold sweat and dreamed she was back in a prison cell. I'm tired. I'm tired of being tired. I'm, I'm tired of waking up and remembering it's not over yet. She says she finds comfort here, on a winding two-lane highway, on this cold February afternoon. I think that bike gives me the freedom that, honestly, right now, nothing else can. That nobody could touch me in those moments. And I love it. Flawed Justice is produced by Randy Page and edited by Joel Fallon and Richard Alvarez. Original theme and music composed and performed by Randy Page. Our website is flawedjustice.com. 
That's where you can go if you'd like to get a look at the interviews, police interrogations, crime scene photos, and documents on the case. And if you have any information on the case, or if you'd like to share your comments, you can contact me directly through the website. I'd love to hear from you. Again, that's flawedjustice.com. Special thanks to Tara Feinstone, executive producer of this podcast and vice president and news director of CBS2 KCAL 9, and BJ Dahl, Flawed Justice associate producer and director of digital content. And thanks to the folks at CBS in Los Angeles, including president and general manager Steve Malden, assistant news director Jennifer Pierce, managing editor Paul Button, operations manager Patrick Givens, and producer Jerry Constant. Flawed Justice is a production of CBS Los Angeles and KCBS-TV. Thanks for listening.